babysitting. I'm sure all of us in this room have done it at some point. When I was at college, I was asked to do it once or twice. To be honest, I was terrible at it. I wanted the children to like me, so I'd let them get away with far too much. They ate sweets, they watched TV, they jumped up and down on the sofa. And of course, then when it came to putting them to bed, it was impossible. They were wired on sugar and far too excited. I remember the, the dread of them still being awake when the parents came home. I remember rushing around, picking up empty sweet wrappers off the floor and putting cushions back on the seats in the lounge. I also remember the sense of responsibility. One night, when I'd actually got the children to sleep, I vividly remember sitting there not having a clue what to do. Suddenly, one of the children uh, walked down the stairs into the living room and then back out again. He was sleepwalking. I'd never seen a sleepwalker before. Should I wake him up? Should I try and lead him back to bed? Should I just leave him? I remember sitting there paralyzed by my incompetence. But it didn't last too long because he soon walked into a cabinet, woke himself up and started screaming the house down. And I decided there and then that babysitting was not for me. I'm sure some of you will have stories to tell as well. But we all get the concept of babysitting. Someone is tasked on the parent's behalf to look after the children. They're perhaps to provide a meal or a few hours entertainment, but most of all they are there to keep the children safe, keep them from mischief until the parents arrive back in person. Babysitting then is a serious role Parents only choose people who they really trust to perform this task. So why do I begin this sermon talking about babysitting? Well, that is how Paul describes Israel before the arrival of Jesus. They were being babysat. Who was the trusted babysitter? It was the law. Sadly, in most English translations, this vivid illustration is lost, but it is there in the Greek text of verses 23 to 25. Let me give you perhaps a more accurate translation from the great New Testament scholar Tom Wright. Before this faithfulness arrived, we were kept under guard by the law, in close confinement until the coming faithfulness should be revealed. Thus the law was like a babysitter for us, looking after us until the coming of the Messiah, so that we might be given covenant membership on the basis of faithfulness. But now that faithfulness has come, we are no longer under the rule of the babysitter. Now the Greek word that is being translated babysitter there is pedagogos from which we get the English word pedagogue, meaning a teacher of children. In the first century, a, a pedagogos was a personal slave attendant appointed by wealthy parents to look after their children. They would have been their most trusted slave on the estate as the role was an important one. And the pedagogos would have taken the children to a school, kept them safe, exercised a certain amount of discipline when required. 
In the ancient world, they weren't so much a teacher, more a supervisor with a nurturing role. Perhaps in the West today, the closest we get to what Paul is describing here is the role of an au pair. But it's not too dissimilar from a babysitter. So Paul is saying that before the arrival of Jesus, the law acted as this au pair, this babysitter, guiding, protecting, disciplining God's children Israel until they grew up. And you don't have to read much of the Old Testament to discover that Israel did indeed need to grow up. Do you remember the story that as soon as they got out of Egypt, they moaned and said, we want to go back. When God miraculously gave them water to drink, they moaned, we're hungry. When he gave them manna to eat, they moaned, the food wasn't as good as it was in Egypt. Sounds like children, doesn't it? And the immaturity of Israel is shown by their rebellion and their forgetfulness of God through hundreds of years. So God discerned that they needed looking after, supervising, disciplining, until he would turn up in person, like parents returning after a night out. Naturally, when the parents get home, the babysitter is relieved. They don't continue their supervision any longer. Neither once a child has grown up is a babysitter required. You wouldn't babysit a 21-year-old. And this is how Paul is describing the law in these verses. It was given to Moses to guard Israel through their immaturity. But once the Messiah had come, it was no longer required. It was redundant. The parent was home. And through the parent's personal attention, the child would grow up. Paul believes that through Jesus, Israel came to maturity. They reached the age of responsibility, the age of trustworthiness. And in this passage, he uses the word faith. In Christ, the age of immaturity ended, the age of faith arrived. And this is the key to understanding this passage. Faith is the sign of maturity. Faith is the sign that the babysitter, the law, is no longer required. Faith is what brings full adult membership into God's family. And notice that throughout these verses, Paul uses the pronoun we. We were being guarded. We were being looked after by the pedagogos. He is speaking from his experience of a Jew. He himself was in this position, living under the babysitter. But now he had grown up. He'd come to know the faithfulness of Christ, and in turn, Paul had placed his faith in him. I wonder, when God looks at us, does he see childishness? Or does he see faith? But what makes this passage so complicated is that from talking about babysitters and the situation of the Jews before the arrival of Jesus, Paul rapidly changes metaphors and starts talking about the Gentiles before the arrival of Jesus as well. He deals with the two simultaneously for reasons we will discover in a minute. Before Jesus, the Gentiles were not living as children. 
their position was slightly more distant than that. They were living as slaves. The Jews were privileged to have been called by God as his family. Yes, they were taking a long time to grow up, but they were in it. God had appointed the best babysitter he knew to look after the children he deeply loved. However, the Gentiles hadn't received this great welcome into the family yet. They were still slaves. And in the Greek, when Paul talks about this, he switches pronouns from we to you to talk about this. He's writing to the Galatians as Gentiles. This was their situation before Jesus came. So who were the Gentiles slaves to? Well, Paul sees them as being under some form of religious bondage, bondage to pagan rituals and idols of the time. And when you think about how the people lived back then, you can see that this is an accurate description. The Gentile people in the early centuries lived in fear of the gods. There were many of them and they all had to be placated at the right time. If you didn't give the gods their due, you feared the lightning bolt being thrown. So every day you had to decide which god needed pleasing next. If you wanted a baby, you had to please the fertility god. If you wanted a good harvest, you had to please the god of the harvest. If you were going to travel by ship somewhere, you had to please the god of the sea. So you had safe passage. And of course, the Romans had just added a new idol to the list. Every day you had to go to Caesar's temple and please him as well. Can you sense the burden on the people? If they didn't get their devotions and their sacrifices and their temple attendance right, then they feared having miscarriages, famines, drought, sinking at sea, even falling down dead on the spot. This was a religion of blackmail, a religion of fear, trepidation. This was Slavery, says Paul. Paul says that before Christ, the Gentiles were slaves. They needed to be redeemed from these idols, redeemed from these pagan powers. They needed to be set free from fear so they could start to really live. So let's now start putting this together. You've got the Jews on one hand living as immature children requiring the babysitter of the law and on the other hand you have the Gentiles living as slaves. Now listen to what Paul says in verse 1 of chapter 4. What I am saying is that as long as an heir is under age he is no different from a slave although he owns the whole estate. Paul says that before Jesus, Jews and Gentiles were effectively in the same position. There was no difference between them. If you imagine a big prosperous estate, think Downton Abbey here, handed down through the generations, neither immature children or slaves get to run the estate. Neither immature children or slaves receive the income or the profit from the estate. And both immature children and slaves are subject to those who are in charge of them. They're in the same position. 
But now listen to what Paul goes on to say in verses 2 to 7 of chapter 4. He says that when Jesus came, everything changed. Jesus was the first fully mature Israelite, therefore fulfilling the role of Israel, fulfilling the law. He came and he enabled the Jews to grow up. He gave them the perfect example to follow and he gave them his Holy Spirit so they'd have the power to follow. Jesus enabled the immature children, the Jews, to grow up to maturity. But simultaneously, he set the Gentiles free from slavery. By dying and rising again, he defeated evil. He proved that all the pagan gods were false. Only he was the true God. So they didn't need to live in tyranny and fear of all the idols any longer. Paul says that Christ redeemed those who were living under the babysitter of the law and he redeemed those living under the slavery of pagan gods. Now hear the great promise that this fact contains. Because Christ came and lived and died and rose again and now poured out his spirit, Jews are no longer children, Gentiles are no longer slaves. Through Christ, they have become sons. Now, for the ladies of the congregation, I hope you don't mind me using non-gender inclusive language for a moment, because the image of a son here is important, because in the Gentile world, it was the son who inherited the father's estate. So when you read this passage, ladies, you need to see yourself in the place of a son in the ancient world. We are all equal inheritors of God's kingdom, regardless of our gender. But the image Paul uses only works if we talk about sons. So Paul says that Christ has made us sons, sons of the king. No longer infants but grown-up sons, mature and responsible. No longer slaves outside of the family, but sons fully embraced within it. And in these verses, Paul spells out three great promises that these new sons of God receive. First of all, as sons, they are given responsibility. Their full rights, it says in verse 5. Once come of age, sons had to take responsibility for some of the estates. They had to work it. So God calls Jew and Gentile sons to share in his work by sharing the gospel. We have that privileged role today. Secondly, as sons, we are granted the father's favor, his intimacy. Imagine a, a very wealthy family Young children are looked after by an au pair. Maybe they're even sent away to school. They don't get to spend much time with the father. But grown-up sons are embraced by the father. They are the delight. They are the pride of the father. They're no longer separated away in the nursery where they, they can't be heard or seen. Any more than the slave is separated in the servants' quarters downstairs. They have access to the presence of the Father. 
And this is what Paul is stressing when he talks about the Holy Spirit in verse 6. After Jesus, we are filled with the Holy Spirit. With the Spirit, we're enabled to cry out, Abba, Father. An expression of that really close relationship. It's the Spirit that brings us into the Father's presence. It's the Spirit that enables us to live a mature life without the need of the law as a babysitter any longer. And thirdly, as sons, we come into the Father's inheritance. We have grown up. So the estate, with all of its profits, can be passed down to us. Thereby we have become an heir of the Father. And this is what Paul says in verse 7. Through Christ we have become inheritors of the kingdom, guaranteed a place in the new heavens and a new earth with a glorious resurrection body. We inherit all the promises of God for a glorious future in his presence, where there be no more pain or tears or death, and the promise of his guidance every day until that future is realised. So this is the amazing promise on offer to Jew and Gentile alike. Through Christ, you no longer need to be an immature child anymore. You no longer need to be a slave anymore, because through Christ you are a son of God. You can join in God's work. You can be filled with his presence. You can inherit eternal life starting today. What an incredible promise this is. But there is one final thing that we need to understand about this passage. We do not become heirs of this promise automatically. Jesus Christ has done everything we need to stop being immature children or slaves to the powers of the world, but we do not inherit without taking some action ourselves. And Paul stresses, as we thought earlier, that God looks for faith. Faith is the sign of maturity. And there is one clear way to demonstrate faith above all others through public baptism as a believer. It is so important, Paul puts it right at the heart of this passage in verse 26. In Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptised into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. A baptism of faith is what God looks for in order to confer his promise. Through baptism, we confess our sin and we look to Jesus. We die to our old lives and we grow up into a new life. We die with Christ, we rise with Christ. That's why we put someone completely under the water and bring them up again. The symbolism is important. But what is this bit about being clothed with Christ all about? Well, you need to know that traditionally, after a baptism, when the believer came out of the water, they were given a new set of clothes to wear. And these clothes were gleaming white, a sign that they'd taken up Christ and their sins had been washed away. Their white baptismal robes were a symbol of purity. So there was no question that once you'd been baptised, you were different. You looked physically different. And Paul is saying 
that once we have been baptised as believers, we look different to God. From that moment on, when God looks at us, he sees Jesus. This is what Paul means when he says, you have clothed yourself with Christ. From the moment of our baptism, God looks at us and sees his son. Paul says we are in Christ. And when God sees his son, he pours out all of those promises that we've just thought about. To put it simply then, to become heirs of these promises available to us through Christ, through faith, God looks for our faith to be expressed in baptism. That public, that personal confession to all who can hear that we are followers of Jesus. But alongside this great promise on offer here comes the radical implication. If after baptism, and we've all got dressed in our new white robes of Jesus, and God looks upon us and he sees us as his son, that means that God sees every single believer as the same. He sees Jesus in all of them no matter what their previous background or history might be. Listen to these groundbreaking, world-shaking words. You who are baptised in Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So to put all that we've thought about together, baptism is the coming of age moment for the Jews who were living as immature children before Jesus. It's the liberation moment for those who were living as slaves, the Gentiles before Jesus. It's the conscious choice to grow up or to lay down the chains and follow the Messiah. And all of those who are baptised are sons of God. When God looks at them, he sees Jesus. They are part of his family, heirs of his promise. And there is no distinction or hierarchy at all. What a wonderful, wonderful truth this is. This is the heart of the gospel. It's complicated but it changes the world if you believe it. So we've covered a lot of ground, very dense passage, I know. I just want to clarify what I think we should take away. First of all, we should get baptised. <laughs> I say that loud and clear. God is looking for faith. He sees that through baptism. I call us to confess our sins, place our trust in Jesus and get baptised on confession of faith. If you've not got baptised yet, I urge you to consider it. If you've not been baptised as a believer, I urge you to consider that as well. Because the faith that God looks for is a personal one. He's looking to make you a son. And a baptism of faith is the way to become an heir to the great promises we have thought about. Secondly, we must make sure that as a church, all distinctions are irrelevant 
compared to knowing Jesus. It doesn't matter what country or race or culture or gender or class or age or background or anything that somebody comes from. If they follow Jesus, God sees them as a son, just as he sees you. I am a son, you're a son. He sees us the same, and so must we. There must be complete equality in our church. And it also means that we should look for equality with our brothers and sisters in other denominations as well. There may be good reasons from church history as to why there are Catholics and Protestants and Charismatics and Conservatives and Baptists and Free Church. But when you read this passage, all of that comes under the judgment of God. We are one family. He sees us all as sons. So we must work for unity within the family of God. And finally, we are to live like sons. In verse 7 of chapter 4, Paul suddenly changes from speaking with the we pronoun when he was talking about the immature children and the you pronoun when he was talking about the slaves to you singular. You. He's now speaking to each one of his readers personally. He's speaking to you and he's speaking to me. You belong to Christ. 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 I belong to Christ. Hear that said to you this morning. You belong to Christ. Now you have to live like it. Don't go back to living under the babysitter of the law. Don't go back to slavery and serving the powers and the idols of the world. Live as a mature, grown-up son. A representative of the father's estate. Allow this to change everything about you. Your behaviour and your priorities. Live as the son of God that you are. Let's pray together.